We'll pray together and, and uh, dive in. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift that we have in, in being able to join together. We pray that as we think about the topic of uh, free will, that you would help us to uh, think about it biblically, that we would have this uh, important term uh, defined in our mind according to how you define it in your word. We pray that you would do this so that we would also have a, a right understanding of uh, who man is apart from your grace and, and who we are uh, in light of your grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this morning we're going to be going through chapter 9 of the Confession of Free Will. Um, may be surprising to some who uh, maybe don't understand uh, the, the viewpoint of those who hold to God's sovereignty over salvation from beginning to end, that there would be a whole chapter on the topic of free will, um, but there is. And so we're going to look at it, we're going to try to biblically define what free will is, but before we dive into that, before we dive in to see what the confession says about this topic, I just want to introduce uh, two views of free will. Uh, one thing that's important when we're having any sort of discussion with someone is defining our terms. It's important to define our terms because we could be using the same term but defining it differently and be talking right past each other. And so it's important to define what do we mean uh, by a given word and, and in this case what do we mean by free will. And I would say there's, there's two major uh, views on how someone would define free will. You have uh, what is known as a libertarian free will. And uh, the other, I would just call it a, a biblical view of free will. Uh, a libertarian notion of free will is sort of the air that we breathe. It's the uh, normal view, uh, the normal way that people would define it, even if they don't have a definition in their mind, even if they haven't thought through it. Um, this is sort of how they would view free will, and, and it's the idea that, um, that free will is not determined by our nature. Uh, you might also say that uh, free will, this, this libertarian view of free will, is the idea that uh, everybody has the freedom to even act contrary to their nature. It's almost like a, uh, a neutral view of the will that the will is not impacted by the nature of, of a person. Now right off the bat, there should be some red flags to us because does God have free will? Um, can God act contrary to his nature? No. Do something that's evil? No. no. So right off the bat, there should be some questions about this 
view, there should be some red flags. Furthermore, um, saints in glory. Past or when Christ returns, when we're in glory, would we say that they have free will, that we will have free will in glory? We'll have the ability to choose, choose things, right? But will we ever want to choose to sin? Will we ever act contrary uh, to what we are in glory? And that's because we understand that uh, free will is, is not this sort of a neutral thing. It's not this thing that is unaffected by our nature. That free will, and, and we'll see this throughout Scripture, that free will, as, as the Bible defines it, is the idea that, that man or, or person chooses what he wants according to his nature. That we actually really do make choices, we, we really do what we want to do, but that it is always in accordance to our nature, just like God. God always chooses what he wants to do, and what he wants to do is always good and holy and perfect and all, all the rest, right? That, that God would never act contrary to his nature. And it's, it's the same with man. Man chooses what he wants, but it's always in accordance to his nature, okay? The question that then should arise is, what is man's nature? What is man's nature? If we act according to, if we, if we choose what we want, According to our nature, what is man's nature? And so the rest of our time today, we're going to look at um, four different states of man's nature. Four different states of man's nature. And, and first, we're going to look at uh, man's uh, nature uh, before the fall. So, uh, in other words, man's free will, what does free will look like before the fall? Let's go ahead and read the first paragraph of chapter 9 of free will. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. So this paragraph is looking at what was free will uh, like uh, in terms of how God created it. How did God create man's will? And we see several things, and we'll uh, look at some, some scripture here in a moment, but first of all, we see that uh, man actually has freedom to choose what he wants to do. God has given man that ability. Now, of course, there's constraints on that. Just because I want to uh, fly doesn't mean that I can fly, right? It's in accordance to the way that, that God created me. 
and we'll see in accordance to our nature, freedom to choose uh, what he wants. God has given man that ability. Furthermore, uh, nothing outside of him forces him to do good or evil. There's no uh, coercion. And the key word there is forced. So, um, uh, an example, let, let's say that um, you're, you're in Chicago. It's, I wouldn't want to be there. And uh, someone points a, guns at, a gun at you and says, uh, give me all your money. No, let me change this a little bit. He points a gun at you and he says, lie or I will shoot you. Okay. Now, it seems like he's forcing you to lie, right? But do you still have a choice in that matter? Yes. Yes, you can, you can choose the, the alternative, right? He can't force you to commit evil. You, you have a real choice. There's consequences if you choose the good. Um, you know, just like uh, the Christian martyrs. Uh, uh, confess Caesar as Lord or, or you will be fed to the lions. Do they have a real choice? Yes, yeah, and they, and they chose, many of them chose what was good. And so that, that's what we're talking about. Nothing outside can force us, force a person uh, to do good or evil. That's the way that God created man. And uh, lastly, there's nothing in the way that uh, man was created that determines that he does good or evil. So God did not create man uh, in such a way that it had to be, it was determined that man would choose evil. Does that make sense? This is how God created man. This is what free will looks like before the fall, that man has the freedom to choose what he wants. Uh, nothing outside him force, forces him to do good or evil. Nothing uh, in the way that he's created determines that he would do good or evil. Man actually has a, a real choice. Man actually has choice. That's the way that God created him. Um, some, some verses that, that indicate that man actually has a choice, the, the physical ability to choose what he wants. Matthew 17, 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Uh, he's talking about John the Baptist, uh, why did uh, people uh, kill John the Baptist? Because they chose what they pleased to do. They had that ability to choose, and they chose what they wanted uh, to do. Uh, James uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we can't uh, uh, blame God for our desire to commit evil. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So in other words, why do people sin? They choose to. They want to, right? It's not that someone has forced them to sin. It's not that God tempts them to sin or uh, uh, twists their arm to sin. Even though he's sovereign, man uh, sins because he wants to and he chooses to. And then Deuteronomy 30, and we could look at other passages where a choice is laid out uh, before man. But Deuteronomy 30 there, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. And so, uh, what's set before the, the people of Israel is a real choice. And the, uh, the encouragement is to choose life. Okay, there's a real choice uh, that is presented. And, and man has the, the power and the ability to choose uh, what he wants to do. Okay? Secondly, and this, this connects to before the fall, uh, the question is, how did, uh, what was man like in his state of innocency? So this is more uh, looking at how God created man. Um, but let's, let's read the second paragraph. Man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which is good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable or, or changeable so that he might fall from it. And so... Uh, what was free will like before the fall? Uh, they had the freedom uh, to do what they wanted. I'm going to run out of room here, but that's okay. And they actually had the ability, the freedom and the ability to do good. That word ability is important. Adam and Eve were actually able to do good. And at the same time, uh, they were created in such a way where they had, uh, really, the, the freedom and ability to do evil. Adam and Eve had both the freedom and ability to choose good, to actually do good, and they had the freedom and ability uh, to fall into sin. They could actually choose that, though there was nothing created in them that determined that they would do that. They could actually choose that. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So God, in the way that he created Adam and Eve, they were actually created upright, uh, uh, created good, but they also had the ability to seek out many schemes, and they did so. They chose to sin. They had that ability to sin, to fall from that state of uh, goodness. Genesis 3.6, we see this play out. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And so God created Adam and Eve very good. And yet, we see as, as uh, history plays out, they also had the ability to choose evil, and they did choose evil. Okay, so that's man's will before the fall, uh, and also man in, in the way that God created him. Does something change after the fall to man's will? It's an important question. Right? Has something changed? Is man still like this with the freedom and ability to do good and the freedom and ability to do evil? Let's, let's see here. Is the will, is man's will after the fall neutral? Let's see. Uh, paragraph three. Man by, his fa- uh, man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to, to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And so, a couple of things we're going to look at. Uh, in Scripture, uh, some notes. What is what is man's will like after the fall? Well, uh, though he has the physical freedom uh, to do what is good, man is unable to do any spiritual good. We're going to qualify this. The inability, what, what, what we mean by this is the inability is not uh, based upon a natural ability. It's not that man's mind is unable to do good. It's not that man's body in, in, the, the, in, in the, the physical ability of man is not able to do good. The problem is a moral inability, right? That though man has the physical ability to do good and, and the ability to choose things and all of these sorts of things. Man has the moral inability. Man has the freedom to choose. The problem is man will never choose what is ultimately good. Does that make sense? The difference between a physical ability and a moral ability? If it's a, if it's a physical inability, you know, if there's something that was restricting me from doing good in my mind or my body, uh, the way that uh, I'm designed as a person, uh, that, that would you know, maybe seem unfair. But if the problem is a moral ability, if the problem is I don't actually want to do good and that's what's pre- preventing me from doing good, then I certainly should be held responsible for it. You see the difference? That the problem is not in man's uh, physical makeup. The problem is in the fact that man does not want to do good. True, ultimate good. And so... Uh, man is unable to do any spiritual good. Uh, man is unable to save himself after the fall. Certainly connects to the fact that 
man is unable to do any spiritual good. A man is unable to convert himself. Uh, apart from the work of God in, in all of these things. That man in himself, after the fall, is not able to convert himself because he has a sin nature. Because he is spiritually dead. We'll see in a moment. And so when the gospel call goes out, when the command to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ goes out, after the fall, um, Apart from the work of God, man will always say no thank you to that call. Man does not want to do that which will ultimately glorify God. Man does not want to obey God uh, completely. Uh, there is an aversion to that. There is an innate rebellion against that because of man's sin nature. Uh, another qualification there, if you continue reading, though fallen man can do relative civic good, Fallen man does not want to do that which is ultimately good, that which pleases God. What do we mean by that? Well, can, can an unbeliever, if, if my car was broken down on the side of the road, is it, uh, could an unbeliever choose to stop and help me? Yes. yes. They can do civic good. They can do that which uh, is beneficial to their neighbor. Okay. Could um, uh, an unbelieving mother love uh, his, uh, her child and, and want to take care of that child and feed that child and see that child grow up and desire good things for that child? Yes. Okay. But will that person who's stopping on the side of the road for me ever stop on the side of the road for me to the glory of God? The true God, the triune God? No. Will the mother who wants what is good for her child, ever uh, want the ultimate good in that that child will glorify God and that she would, that she would desire to glorify God in the way that she parents, the, the one true God? No. And so man, fallen man has the ability to do uh, some good to his neighbor, but that good will never be in obedience to the first table of the law. That good will never be out of a love for God. That good will never be motivated to see God glorified. And so ultimately, it's not actually good in the, in the ultimate sense. Though it may uh, do good uh, to their neighbor and praise God for that. You know, if, if you think about what the world would be like if fallen man uh, was unable to do any sort of civic good, good to his neighbor, this would be an awful place to be in. And so that's God's restraining grace on the world. Um, and that, that's another topic. But uh, this is what fallen man's nature is like. This is what fallen man's will is like. What about the scriptural basis for these things? Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Uh, Paul is explaining uh, how both Jews and Greeks are sinful. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we better off because we have the law and the promises and all of these things from God? Are we more righteous than the, the Greeks because of those things? No. 
Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is a description of, of man in his sin. This is a description of the un, unbeliever apart from the work of God. And so, very clearly, Paul and, and God tells us that no one does good. And we see that as, as ultimate good. And no one seeks after God. And so, right off the bat, just, just from this passage alone, we see clear evidence for this statement. Man is unable to do any spiritual good. He does no good. And uh, man does, is unable to save himself because he's not going to do what, what is good. And man is not able to convert himself in himself. The unbeliever does not seek after God in himself. This is what man's will is like apart from the grace of God. Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. This is a description again of, of the unbeliever. The mind, the unbelieving mind is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Why is that? Indeed, it cannot. It cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So again, another important passage describing what uh, the nature and connected to that what the will of the unbeliever is like. And there's some pretty um, strong words there. The unbelieving mind cannot submit to God's law. The unbelieving mind cannot even please God. And so when the command of God goes out to, uh, to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a command of God, can the unbelieving mind in himself submit to that command? No. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, if that's the case, can the unbelieving mind in himself, uh, the unbelieving person in himself, exercise faith in God. It says he cannot please God. So again, this is what man is like. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, strong language. We were dead in our sin, spiritually dead, spiritually, uh, uh, not that we didn't have a spirit, but that 
the spiritual part of us would never rightly respond to God like a dead corpse, not responding to God the way that it ought to, following the prince of the power of air, carrying out the desires, these sinful desires of the body and mind. And, and what, what makes the difference? This is who we are, Paul is saying. This is who, or who we were. What ends up being the difference between who we were and, and now who we are? What's the, 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 where does the transition take place in this passage? But God. It doesn't say, but you woke up one morning and realized uh, in yourself that you need to make a better decision. The ultimate source, the ultimate reason why there's this transition of who we were to who we are now as, as believers is the work of God and His grace. And just as a side note, you know, what, one of the um, problems with a, sort of a libertarian view of free will is that it diminishes this work of God and His grace. Because if ultimately I, I'm able to convert myself, if ultimately I have the power in my will, in myself, to choose what is right, it diminishes uh, the necessity of God to work in me. It diminishes what God has done in His grace to uh, take me, who I was, this, um, this person who was following the prince of the power of the air, being a son of disobedience, of his ability and power to take that who I was and to make me a son of God. And the problem with the libertarian free will is, is it also elevates who we are apart from the work of God. That it, it gives us some spark of goodness, some ability to choose good because perhaps maybe we would want to choose good. But that doesn't uh, correlate with the scriptural evidence and as we look at all the passages that describe who the unbeliever is, who we were, um, it's much of the same. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, listen to this, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, we were once slaves to our sin. When, when sin beckoned, we always said yes, in one way, shape, or another. It looks different with different people. You know, some people might look very good on the outside, but their sin is pride, you know, or a rebellion against the triune God. You know, we think of Mormons would be a good example of that. They look very good on the outside. They're not murdering people or looting stores or, but at the end of the day, they do not love uh, the one true God. And uh, often you can see pride too. And so we were slaves of sin. This is what the unbeliever is like. What's the transition again? This is who we are. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That's the transition. And then he goes on. How, how, does, how does he do this? 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us that new birth, causes us to be born again, causes us uh, to have a new nature that actually wants to obey God. And we'll, we'll see more of that in a moment. And then lastly, John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. It's not, it's not a physical inability. Again, what's the inability? What's the problem? It's the, a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the sin nature of the will that does not want to come to Christ. And so what is needed? What is required for that to happen? The Father must draw that person to Christ. The Father must do a work in that person, and all that the Father draws to Christ will be raised up on the last day. So this is what uh, our free will is like after the fall. Apart from the work of God, do we still choose what we want to do? Do we still have the freedom? Does the unbeliever still have the freedom to choose what he wants? Yes. The problem is, is you'll always want to choose sin in one way or another. Is there anything outside of the unbeliever that forces him to do evil? Is there some, is, is God outside of man twisting his arm to do evil or, or even is Satan forcing a man to do evil? No, he can tempt a man, but he can't force a man to do evil. And is there any thing in the way that God created man that determines that that person would do evil? Is God the author of, of sin in that person? No. So again, man actually does have freedom. He has free will, but this free will, man's will, is affected by his nature. It's, it's not divorced from who we are, just in the same way that God's free will is not divorced from his nature, thankfully. Okay. Let's continue on. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. We see hints of that, that, that this is who man is apart from the grace of God. This is who man is if God did not do anything, if God just left everybody to their own devices. This is what man would be like. But there's more. Uh, chapter 9 of the Confession, paragraph 4, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. Okay? So we're looking at another state of man here. So we looked at before the fall in man's innocency, Adam and Eve had the freedom and ability to choose good or evil. We looked at um, man after the fall, that because of his sin, man only wants to do what is evil and thus will never want to do what is good. Now let's look at uh, free will after Regeneration, after the Spirit causes a person to be born again.
Those are some ugly letters, aren't they? <laughs> so we see in this uh, paragraph several things. We see, first of all, that man's will has been freed from the bondage of sin. We were once slaves to sin, but now have been freed from the bondage of sin. We also see that uh, uh, the free will after regeneration is able to choose good and able to do spiritual good. And we see that uh, the fr uh, free will after regeneration in, in the believer uh, that it is still imperfect, the man is still imperfect and still sins. So you have sort of this um, a transition that takes place after the, the Spirit causes a person to be born again. Uh, after they put their faith in Christ, they're now freed from this bondage of sin. They don't have to do what sin tells them to do. They're actually able to choose and do that which is spiritually good. But at the same time, the believer in, in this life is still imperfect and still sins. That um, there's a part of us that remains that uh, still wants to sin and that still likes to sin. Okay, And so Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He has, this is, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we were once, um, we were once soldiers, as it were, of the domain of darkness, and slaves, really, in that uh, domain. And yet God does this work to transfer us out of that domain of darkness, out of service to sin, into uh, the kingdom of his beloved son, to be servant to him. That there's a, there's a fundamental change that happens uh, because of the work of God in the believer. John chapter 8, verse, verses 31 through 36, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. So Jesus is talking to the, to the Jews. He's saying, hey, if, if uh, you're truly my disciples, you're going to know the truth, and that truth will set you free. And they start thinking about sort of this physical enslavement. Hey, we're, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And we know that they're even wrong about that, that they actually were enslaved to people at, at various times. But uh, Jesus doesn't get into that. 
He, he says, I'm not, I'm not talking about this, this physical bondage of, of men enslaving you. The slavery that I'm talking about is a slavery to sin. That uh, those who practice sin are, are slaves to sin. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we look back to who we were before we were believers, we were practicers of sin, right? We were slaves to sin. But what happens? What happens when, when we hear the truth, when we believe the truth, we have been set free from slavery to sin. And so the believer, again, is freed. Free. The truth has set us free from this slavery that we were once in to sin. One wonderful, wonderful news. Continuing on, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the admonition there is, hey, work out your salvation. Pursue holiness. Pursue sanctification. Why? Because God is working in you so that you would actually have the desire and the ability to act for his good pleasure. So in the believer, because we have God working in us, we actually more and more have this ability to do that which is spiritually good. And that God has actually prepared those good works beforehand for us to walk in them. That uh, it is God's plan and purpose that the believer uh, do that which is good, and he's working in us to accomplish that. Now, is it a perfect good? No. But it is a good that is acceptable and well-pleasing in the sight of our Father because of the blood of Christ, that, that our good works are, as it were, mediated through what Christ has done. And so we can actually do that which is pleasing to God and glorifying uh, to God. And then Romans 7, an important passage. Uh, this passage gives evidence that uh, the believer still is imperfect and sins. There are some who say that uh, this is uh, Paul talking about the unbeliever, but I, I think it's pretty clear that this is Paul talking about himself as he's writing it. This is the struggle that he faces. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. This, these words should, I think, ring true in every believer's ears that, that these are things that we struggle with. I, I want to do what's good. I don't want to do what's evil, but I do the very thing I hate to do. Now if I do what I do, do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then I, ser- I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And he goes on to say, there's no more condemnation in Christ Jesus, praise God. That uh, within the Christian we have this, this, this battle because we have this new nature. We have this new nature that wants to do good, that wants to do what's pleasing to God, that wants to glorify God, but we still have this old nature, this old man that, that loves sin. And so there's conflict within the believer um, because though we have been given a new nature, though we have been risen to new life in Christ, and even though that old man was crucified with Christ, dead as it, as it were, the corpse of my old man is still attached to me. And the influence of the desire of sin is still present within me in this life. And so what, this is important because there are those who teach this idea of a sinless perfection, that the Christian can actually achieve a, a level of perfection in this life. And I'm like, if, if Paul couldn't achieve it, I certainly am not going to achieve it. And, and it's because it's rooted in the fact that we still have the old dead man uh, attached to us in this life. And so there's that, that conflict. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the, the believer is able to choose that what is, good, what is good and also still has the ability to choose that which is evil. And we see that play out in our lives, I think, that, that struggle. Well, there's one last uh, state that we want to look at. Because this would be sad news if we ended here. Right? That if this conflict was going on forever, that would not be exciting news to any of us. But there's another state. The free will after glory. And this is uh, for the believer. The will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. And so, I I like how the, the confession puts it, we're free to do good alone in glory. And that's, you know, that's true freedom. True freedom is not, I have the chance to sin and I have the, the, the chance to do what's good. True freedom is only being able to do good alone. That's the freedom that, that I want, that I think we all want. And we see also that there's no possibility of falling into sin. So whereas Adam uh, was created with the ability to do what is good, and he was created with the ability to choose evil, we actually in glory will be in a much better state than Adam. 
Yay, it is right. <laughs> because we will not have the freedom to choose evil. Because we won't have the desire to choose evil. It will not be in our nature to choose evil. That's the kind of free will that I want. A free will where my very nature will always be opposed to evil. Will never desire evil. Won't have the ability to choose evil. Because I will only want to do what is good. And that's what we have to look forward to as Christians. And it, admittedly, there's not um, many explicit passages on this, uh, of the state of glory, but I think some necessary inferences that we can make to indicate these things. Um, Romans eight twenty nine uh, through 30, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those uh, whom he justified, he also glorified. And I, I think I, oh no. Um, and so there's this, this chain of what's going to happen. And in that first part there, what are we predestined to be conformed into? The image of the Son. And by that, we can uh, imply, and I think it's actually a, a necessary implication, that we will not want to sin or have the ability to sin because Jesus Christ, the one we're being conformed into, uh, does not have the desire to sin, nor ever will have the desire to sin, cannot fall into sin, and that's the very image that we're being conformed into. First uh, John 3.2, along similar lines, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's more to come. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Again, we're going to be like Christ. And uh, Christ never will desire to do evil and never will do evil. And that is the image that we're being conformed into. And this is actually what we were created for. We were created in the image of God. And God is accomplishing that in glory, where we will actually truly uh, and fully be able to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. To actually show what He is like in His holiness and goodness and righteousness the way that we were uh, created for. And so these are the uh, different states of man. Uh, and as you can see, uh, our nature is different in each state, and I, I hope that you can see our nature actually impacts our free will, that, that we can't divorce our will from our nature in the same way that you can't with God. Um, just another thing, we'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, why does this matter? We've talked about already, it matters because the glory of God is at stake. Just how much does God do to, to save us? Um, a realistic view of man is at stake. Uh, what is the ability of the unbeliever? That's an important question. What is the unbeliever like? And connected to that, in terms of evangelism, uh, it, it should impact how we view evangelism. Because if, if man, man's will, if the unbelieving man's will is neutral, could swing this way, could swing that way, 
we, we might be tempted to do things to get him to make a decision. You know, maybe we turn the lights off um, at the end of service. We have Ryan, is he in here? No, we, we have Ryan's really hit the cymbals hard. You know, and we have smoke come on, and, and we have this impassioned uh, um, thing going on, and we're trying to evoke feelings out of the people because if we can just get them to make that decision, we got them. That, that work of salvation, um, that, that, that unbeliever actually has it in himself to choose what is good, and I just need to convince him to choose what is good. I just need to bring him to some sort of state where he will choose what is good. As opposed to this, the, the idea that man's will is totally opposed to the things of God, hates God, suppresses the truth that he knows about God, will never seek after God, will never do what, that which is good, and the view that it, it is completely dependent on the work of God to change that man's heart, that brings about a very different focus. Because now my focus is not so much on creating circumstances to make that man uh, have a decision. Instead, my focus is on pleading with God to change that person's heart. Pleading that God would cause that person to be born again. And, and we understand that the means that God does that is through the proclamation of the gospel. And so we plead with the Spirit of God that that he would change their hearts, that he would cause them to be born again, and we focus on the simple, simple proclamation of Christ and him crucified because we know that that is what the Spirit of God uses to cause a man to be born again and to put their faith in Christ. And that we know that that is enough. It is sufficient, and it is the only sufficient uh, thing to bring a person out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. And so... Do you see the difference there? If it's just about getting a decision, we can do things to get someone to say yes. You know, do you not want to go to hell? Well, yeah, I don't want to go to hell. Okay, all you have to do is say this prayer. That's not what we're going for. We're going for re, a, a person to be born again by actual faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so... Our view of man, our view of the unbeliever is important. And furthermore, it has implications as we look back. Yes, we did make a choice. And we do have the ability to choose. We actually ch chose to put our faith in Christ. But we know the determining factor in all that was the grace of God. And so I look back and I, I know that I chose to put my faith in Christ not because I was smarter than someone. Not because I was more humble than someone. Not because I had all the ducks in a row. I didn't prepare myself for that in the right way. I know that the ultimate difference is the grace of God, and that causes me to rejoice. Because I know if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would still be in the place of my unbelieving friends who are chasing after the world, who are enslaved to sin, doing what they want, uh, but what they want is sin. And so that should cause us to a greater praise and a sense of dependency uh, on the grace of God. And so let's, let's pray and, and thank God for that. Father, we thank you for your grace. 
We thank you that, that you have created us with the ability of, of choice. That we can actually choose what we want. And Lord, we recognize man's greatest problem is that he wants sin. That our greatest problem was that we only wanted sin. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that by your Spirit you caused us to be born again to spiritual life, that you gave us a nature that actually wants to uh, be saved by Christ, that you've given us a nature now that more and more wants to reflect what you are like. And pray, Father, that you would accomplish this, that you would help us to pursue uh, holiness all the while, depending on you to work in us to uh, to will and to do for your good pleasure. And Father, we do pray for the unbelievers that we know. We pray that we would be confident in the power of the gospel, that we, we would be confident in the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we would uh, pray for them and share the gospel with them freely, that you would cause them to be born again unto life. We pray for any in our service this morning who do not know Christ, who are maybe still resting in uh, their own ability to do good, or they're uh, resting in something that they did when they were a kid. Maybe they walked an aisle or, or said a prayer. I pray that they would see their, their ultimate need for Christ and that they would rest in Him alone, that they would rest in the fact that Christ Jesus is sufficient uh, for their salvation, not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, that they would sense their utter need for Him and that they would rest in Him alone uh, for salvation. We pray that you would do this to show your, the glory of your power and grace. We pray that you would do this to encourage uh, us. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.